today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Uh, yeah, so far so good, heading into a weekend, so uh, a sunny one at that. All right, the yeah. Prime Minister cleared uh, when it comes to the we, uh, we Charity, not a conflict of interest. However, uh, Bill Morneau broke uh, uh, ethic laws, uh, ethics laws a couple of times. Your thoughts on the Prime Minister being cleared? Is that it? Is this over? Is it done with? Yeah, well, actually, Morneau was charged three times, which is actually more in one separate issue than Trudeau has been in the two previous times he was found guilty of ethics violations, uh, which is kind of fascinating. But again, Morneau was out, and he didn't get his quote-unquote dream job at the OECD, so, yep. you know, he's out of politics, so for him, I don't think it's, I think it's, it's more of an embarrassment than anything else, but I don't know if he would necessarily be frustrated on a day-by-day basis, because he's not going to have to face it. As for the Prime Minister, look, Obviously, Justin Trudeau is going to take some private solace in the fact that he was able to escape this because it would have been third time lucky or three three strikes you're out, if you sort of wish. And I think it would have been an an enormous embarrassment for him had he been found guilty of a third ethics violation, having already been felt guilty for or found guilty for the Aga Khan affair and NSC Lavlin, as your listeners may remember. Um, I think he got lucky to some degree, to be perfectly honest with you. The interpretation of the decision basically states, if you look at it, and I'm not sitting right in front of it, that certainly there was an imagery or, or an illusion of a fine line that he was walking with We Charity and the Kyleberger brothers. But you know, Marion Dumont, I'm sorry, Marion Dumont, Marion Dion, who is the, um, the current ethics commissioner, he couldn't necessarily create a straight line from A to B to connect the Prime Minister, basically stating that the illusion of it is one thing, but you obviously have to have information to connect the dots. I mean, that's sort of a 50-50 way of doing it, and some have now suggested that maybe Dion, the ethics commissioner, just didn't want to give Trudeau that third strike. Maybe he didn't want to sort of have that on his personal record as well. I have no idea. I mean, I think Trudeau got very lucky with this, but certainly for himself, He'll, be, he'll think that it was justified. I, I would think he would be smart and his spin doctors would be smart if they don't discuss this issue too much because there's still a lot of information trailing around with We Charity. But is it the end of it? No, not necessarily, because one of the three charges against Morneau and the fact that Trudeau wasn't completely clean. I mean, if you look again, if you look at the decision, it's sort of like, yeah, we sort of see what people are talking about, but we just couldn't connect the dots. If those dots are ever connected later, well, that's different. So where does this leave the We Charity and its relationship with the Prime Minister's family? Yeah, you know, that's the interesting thing. And a lot of people both on the political right and the political left have been commenting about that in social media or in the mainstream media or what have you, making the point that <clears throat> although Justin Trudeau and, and people around him kept directly stating that there was no direct association with him and the Kielberger brothers or We Charity. It seems very far-fetched when you think about it on the surface because, you know, his mother was involved with We Charity his, in the sense that she was she appeared many different times, spoke there, was apparently flown out, et cetera, et cetera, according to reports. His wife did it one time as well. 
And it's just the Kielberger brothers themselves, if I'm not mistaken, also directly said that there was an association between them and the prime minister that lasted roughly a decade, give or take. Or at least, if nothing else, there's a breadcrumb trail that you can follow, which seems to show a lot of this. Um, what does it really do? I mean, We Charity basically has just been battered around. I, it, this decision is not going to protect them. It's not going to promote them. It's not going to save them either. We Charity's basically collapsed for the most part. The only one who's going to be sort of left standing is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But again, you know, maybe not with a dark cloud following him along, but a very gray cloud, if nothing else, because of what he's done in the past and because there's just so much information out there linking his liberal government directly to We Charity, not just once, not just twice, but on multiple occasions over multiple years, and whether Justin Trudeau likes it or not, his name is still attached to that, even though he was cleared by the ethics commissioner. All right, let's talk about line five. Uh, I found it fascinating that um, on May 12th, the day that the uh, Michigan governor wanted this pipeline shut off, shut down, that's when we are talking about it. That's when it makes the news. That's when political leaders uh, start to chat about it. I remember talking to uh, peers, cohorts, uh, other broadcasters in the West, and they were asking me about this months ago, and nobody here seemed to know anything about it. Fascinating. I'm watching a news conference with the NDP's Rachel Notley in Alberta earlier this morning, and yeah. of course they're putting uh, Jason Kenney on the ropes, saying that he needs to go back and, number one, discuss COVID, and number two, line five. Line yeah. five was the second thing out of the NDP leader's mouth in Alberta. I I almost fell off my chair. But in Ontario, it's crickets. Yeah, you know what? From a personal standpoint, I don't understand either. The first couple of people who asked me about it were also both based in the West. Danielle Smith, who is now no longer with one of your sisters. That's who I was talking to, yes. Yeah, well, me too. And I've known Danielle for years. And she asked me about it. And I have to admit, I mean, although I knew a fair bit about it, I was surprised that it started with the West and not the East. And in fact, I've been asked very little about it in the East up until very recently, based on the fact, as you sort of alluded to, that all of a sudden now the taps might just turn off and we've just crossed that that period of, or that threshold. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't understand why Line 5 wouldn't be top of mind to Ontarians, to Eastern Canadians in general. You know, it's it's an enormous undertaking to believe that this thing could be potentially shut down. It will hurt business. It will cost jobs. It will cost us money. Line 5 is extremely, I mean, vitally important, I think is even better to call it, uh, and a business arrangement between Ontario and Michigan alone. You know, whether you like pipelines or not is not the issue. We need pipelines. We really do. We need it to, obviously, for transport purposes, and it's far more costly to do it otherwise. You know, when Seamus O'Regan, for example, who is our federal minister in charge of overlooking and overstating that issue, when he was asked, I believe by CTV News Channel, in terms of, well, what are you going to do if, you know, if everything is shut off and we can't do it? His suggestion was more of a Band-Aid solution. And I'm just paraphrasing. He said, well, we would get, you know, we would get trucks, we would get rail, there, we would find ways to do it. Well, that's an enormous cost to the system, and it costs taxpayer mo- dollars to do something like that. And really, when he was asked several times by several networks, well, why have you waited so long, which sort of goes back to where you and I started, Scott, 
He basically said he was, uh, Seamus O'Regan, again, paraphrasing, he was waiting for the most opportune moment. At the very end was the most opportune moment. You go early and hard, not at the end when it's just sort of like you hold your hands up in the air and say, well, we'll do something else. That's not uh, let me response. ask you. Let me ask you this: Is this because many say that it, it won't be shut down legally? So, is this a to do about nothing, or is it that do, this doesn't jive well with the prime minister's election campaign? It's not in his best interest to be talking or selling pipelines, especially when he's so adamant and against the industry, especially in Canada and out west. So, you know, how can you sit in and say shut her down and then say, but keep this pipeline open? Does this? Does this help him trying to defend this pipeline? Well, remember, I mean, to be fair, not to be disrespectful, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, actually did support pipelines for a period of time. He didn't want them shut down. Remember what happened through Keystone. The only reason that his position changed is when Joe Biden was elected president, basically said that was enough of that. (laughs) Justin Trudeau just went along with it. That's the only reason it switched. When Justin Trudeau used to meet with former U.S. President Donald Trump when they talked about pipelines, I'm not saying that they were necessarily simpatico, but they were pretty close. In fact, I wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed about it, I forget, last summer at some point, I'd have to look it up, which actually showed that the language of the two leaders was remarkably similar when it came to pipelines. So Trudeau has changed his position, unsurprisingly, because A, he wants to have a good relationship with the U.S. president. B, I don't think it was ever a strong issue for him personally. I think he just realized that a lot of his party supporters and a lot of Canadians saw, if not the, a great love or infatuation with pipelines, they understood what the benefit was from an economic standpoint. But now he realizes with the two countries, that being Canada and the U.S., both sort of moving in the same political direction and b- same economic direction, too, because of COVID-19 and other reasons, he now doesn't feel this, this need or this power or this ability. He doesn't feel he has to have the ability to defend it in spite of what the U.S. is saying. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the issue itself in Line 5 itself, I agree with you that legally it won't be shut down. I, I think that's fair to say. But I think that if we're going to have negotiations between not just Ontario and Michigan, but Canada and the U.S. in general, the fact that there is this anti-pipeline, anti-free market, anti-capitalist, anti-whatever you wish to call it, mentality that exists right now between our two nations, or at least between a lot of people who are surrounding our the two world leaders, I think that's actually very bad because it means that other businesses and other business ideas could theoretically be challenged over a period of time. And right now, with the free market economy not in vogue at all, again, due to COVID-19 and other particulars, things like this, unfortunately, just work against it and work to our detriment in our country to be a, you know, to be an important economy, to build enterprise, to develop pipelines, to transport things, and to become not necessarily an energy superpower. We're not big enough but an energy power, or at least maintain that. So I think the whole Line 5 scenario has been very frustrating to watch. The environmentalists are obviously cheering behind the scenes, even if they lose the battle overall, but it's not to Canada's benefit, and we should never think of it that way. Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks so much for your time, and have yourself a great weekend. Be well. You too. Take care, Scott. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sad news uh, in in the uh, when we talk about travel across country in Greyhound and how uh, you know bus service to small towns, rural towns. This has been the backbone of transportation uh, for decades. We've certainly heard uh, prior to the pandemic that Greyhound uh, was having issues and uh, that uh, uh, routes in in Canada were certainly under question. Uh, now uh, Greyhound has announced that they are permanently ending bus service in Ontario. To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Uh, yes, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, obviously, we I think we've talked about this before in the past prior to the pandemic, and the pandemic just sort of uh, the last nail in the coffin, per se? I think it was. Um, when you look at the numbers, I'm talking interprovincial or intercity. Let let because uh, people that support um, you know buses and so forth they 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 confuse the issue by saying oh the numbers are up well you know if you're talking intracity that's a completely different bus market we're not talking taking a bus in one part of Ottawa and going to another part of Ottawa we're talking intercity you mm-hmm. know going from southern Ontario to northern Ontario on a bus those numbers have been declining for thirty years they've been in steady long term decline partly because the airlines have become more aggressive and buying small planes, so-called RJs, regional jets, that can fly with a very small or low break-even into small markets. And they can, it can become profitable flying into a small town or, you know, with an airport, uh, picking up only a handful of passengers. Partly because Via Rail became much more aggressive. Via Rail is owned by the government, subsidized massively by the taxpayers. And, of course, cars have become more, uh, 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 ownership of cars has become greater and greater. I looked up the numbers just the other day. Transport Canada says there's 33 million cars and light trucks. I'm not talking 18-wheel trucks. I'm talking just light trucks, F-150s, Dodges, and cars. 33 million cars and light trucks in Canada. Well, there's only 30 million adults over the age of 18, so just about every last person, just about, has a car or a brother or sister or mother or father. And so it's the, uh, it's the substitutes, train, plane, cars, that uh, killed uh, bus uh, travel, intercity bus travel uh, in the country, in Canada. So what does this mean for uh, the rest of Greyhound, uh, for example, into the U.S.? And what about opportunity for smaller companies here in Canada? Um. You know, when you're talking, there are some opportunities. I, I don't want to duck that at all. But when you're talking a country so enormous, and, and I mean, we all pay lip service to it. Yeah, 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 we're big, we're big. We're the second largest country on the planet Earth. We span 25% of the northern half of planet Earth. That's how enormous we are. I don't think, my view, and the stats show uh, support me, and I've talked about this with my students, the market for long-distance bus travel is gone. And I'm talking, nobody wants to get on a bus in Halifax to go to Vancouver. Uh, it just takes too long. If you're going to do that, you're going to take a, tr- uh, a train on a discounted ticket, but most likely you'll take a plane because the planes do discount if you buy enough in advance. So let's forget that market. You know, flying long distance, and I'm talking, a, you know, you can argue uh, arbitrarily, I'll say a thousand kilometers or more, that the, 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 tr- the uh, planes win. The, they beat cars, 
they beat buses, they beat motorcycles, because long distance, it just doesn't make sense, you know. And now when you get into the short-haul market, and I'm talking short-haul is defined by Transport Canada and the U.S. transportation as less than 400 kilometers, less than 250 miles, the principal mode of transportation today is automobiles. In other words, Ottawa to Toronto, okay? 90% or more of the trips are cars. And so there is where there's potentially a niche market in the short haul and medium haul. So what do I mean by medium haul? Toronto to Sudbury, perhaps. So there won't be, I don't believe that there's a market long haul across the country for passenger service by bus, but there's a possibility, especially in those smaller towns in the remote parts of uh, northern Ontario where they don't have an airport. If they don't have an airport, there's an opportunity. If there's an airport and there's plane service going into that uh, community, Toronto to Sudbury, probably not going to happen just because the ticket prices are down and and it's just so much faster going by 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 plane. So there are some niche opportunities, not a lot, and mostly medium haul, medium distance, I mean, and to those communities that don't have an airport. And what about the United States? Just a situation uh, that, you know, they're just uh, so much more populated than us that there's more of a market for this? Or is the same thing happening there? Yeah. Well, the numbers are declining, uh, but they at the same time, with 330 million people, your market can decline a lot and there's still niche opportunities. And uh, it's such an enormous market that um, they are facing declines and they have been cutting. But as I said, because there's so many people, um, uh, much 10 times larger than Canada, there still remains opportunities in the U.S. And uh, so I, I don't, I'm not suggesting and I don't think the Greyhound will close completely in the States. They may retrench. They may cut back on some of their, wherever they're facing uh, competition from those so-called ultra-low-cost carriers, UL, uh, ultra-low-cost ULCC, and I'm talking the Allegiance. I'm not talking Southwest Air or JetBlue. I'm talking the deep, deep discount ones where you put your own luggage on the plane and, you know, and there's no reserve seating and, and it's point to point and you get on some, you know, you get on an Ogdensburg and you get off in another uh, uh, airport similar to Ogdensburg. That market is taking customers away from buses, but there's not airports in every community in the United States. So there's still lots and lots of communities that don't have airport service. So there's still a market down there for bus. So as far as Canada, long haul bus industry pretty much gone and yes. buses pretty much regulate, uh, uh, relegated to local transit type opportunities. Yes. And that's why when you and I talked about the airlines and this last year, the COVID, because of COVID, I argued very strongly that the uh, government, I thought, was making a big mistake in the way that they were treating the airlines. I've argued that... Um, so many environmentalists, because it always comes up with the environment, comes up in this discussion, and they constantly quote Europe uh, and say, look at all the interprovincial, interstate trade, you know, one city to another, you just jump on a train, yeah. and why don't we do that? And it drives me crazy, Scott, because when you look at the, you can dump all of Europe with 500 million people basically into one part of Ontario, yeah. and they have dense. They have densities of 500 people per square kilometer. We've got four. And, and, and so my point is, is, is that air, air travel in Canada, I argue, is an essential service. I'm not arguing for privatization. I'm saying it's not a luxury. You know, some people think of, oh, well, you know, it's only rich people to go to Florida in the winter. Most people are traveling, you know, because they're in, working in Vancouver and they have a sick, ailing mother in Halifax. 
And it is just not rational or reasonable to say you're going to bicycle or motorcycle or drive from Vancouver to Halifax to see your ailing mother. Air transportation in this country, because we're so enormous, we're so vast, and the densities are so small, only four people per square kilometer, air travel is absolutely essential and inevitable. So the government should be fostering policies that support commercial aviation in this country. And I don't think in the last year we did well. We should have been putting in mandatory testing the moment it became available, quick instantaneous 15-minute test. And we should have been demanding uh, uh, vaccine passports at the airport the moment uh, vaccination started to be rolled out to encourage people to return to airlines because airlines are essential in Canada. Uh, what does the loss of these bus routes mean for the climate change discussion? Is that good? Is that bad? Does it matter? You know, I, I'm, I'm very aware of it. I mean, I, this comes up every term when my students choose an airline. And, you know, and, and I know environmentalists really, really tear out their hair on this one, set their hair on fire. But I've looked at the stats. Okay, the global, global airline industry. That means every last commercial airplane in the world, including China and America, and Canada, et cetera, et cetera, are 2% of global emissions. I'm not trivializing it. I'm not. I'm just simply saying that there's trade-offs that they don't want to acknowledge. And these trade-offs are that when you want to fly long, I can't swim across the Atlantic Ocean. I just can't. And it's not practical to say you're going to take the ship. It takes seven days to go across the ocean. And so there's trade-offs. And those trade-offs are that, well, we're going to have to put up with some emissions from the airline industry until... The day arrives when they've developed suitable electronic substitutes, and they are working. My students have reviewed this in my recent winter term that they're working on uh, technologies, uh, aircraft engines that will run on electricity, on battery power. But they're not there yet. I mean, they're probably, I don't know, I'm not a technology engineer, but they're probably at least 10 years away uh, or maybe 15, I don't know. In the meantime, Scott, We have to, I know this will make the environmentalists set their hair on fire, but we have to accept modest amounts of GHG emissions in the short run as the price of, you know, national unity. We're a second largest country in the world, 8,900 kilometers across. We're not going to bicycle across the country or motorcycle or drive a car. And so we have to accept that we absolutely must have an air, an air travel transportation network. And there's going to be a modest amount of emissions as a consequence until we get to newer, uh, more um, uh, friendly uh, technologies. Uh, since you brought up, uh, and since we're talking about climate change, uh, and I'm going to give you a, I'm going to come right out of uh, left field here. What are your thoughts on all of the discussion that we've been having since May 12th, uh, which is the day that uh, the Michigan governor was supposed to shut down Line Five, uh, a main artery coming into yeah. uh, Ontario? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? And it, this seemed to be, certainly people in Ontario seemed to be oblivious to this until the day right. that they were supposed to shut it off. How do you explain that? Right. Um, well, first off, in terms of uh, the Michigan governor, uh, let's be clear. I, I actually, and I'm not a lawyer, but I mean, it's pretty clear. I've read the facts and everyone else has. This is unconstitutional because uh, this this um, pipeline is not regulated by the state of Michigan. It's, it's regulated federally by the governor of Canada and the governor of the United States under actual treaty. And as you may know, I'm sure you do, um, your listeners may may not know, under the Constitution Act of Canada and the separate Constitution of the United States, 
treaties are exclusively federal jurisdiction. States do not do treaties. Provinces do not do treaties. For the obvious reason, if they did, who's in charge? Who's on first? Who's on second? California does one treaty that says one thing. Michigan does one, another treaty that says the opposite. As a consequence, treaties throughout human history have always been at the national level between one state and another. And Michigan is violating the treaty and usurping the federal authority, which is why it will fail if it goes to court, in my opinion. But to your point, um, I think that why there hasn't been a greater outcry is people just take it for granted that the power, the energy will flow. And I think that they, I guess they're, I think they're assuming that this will work itself out. That is to say, ultimately, Biden will be forced to step in because it's the constitutional authority of the government of the United States. And Trudeau will be forced to step in. And they're not going to impoverish, um, uh, and I mean by that energy impoverishment, of millions and millions of people, not only in southern Ontario. People don't realize uh, upstate uh, upstate United States around Michigan, uh, you know, there's a lot of rural. I've driven in there. And the rural parts, just like rural eastern Ontario, uses what? Propane. Because the pipe, natural gas pipelines don't go to the rural for those city slickers that don't know that. And uh, and and so my point being, the upper Michigan Peninsula is very rural, and something like 55% of the people in Michigan use propane. And line five, guess what, is the principal supplier of the food uh, feedstock that produces the propane, and propane is used to heat your house and your water tank so you can have a shower in the morning. And so this is, uh, you were talking about essential services a moment ago about air travel, Energy is absolutely essential, especially to those of us who live in a more northerly snow belt part of the country. Michigan gets a ton of snow. They're lucky right now that this crisis is occurring in May as we head into the summer, so it's not as critical as if this was in the dead of January at minus 25. I predict then if it had happened then, all hell would have broken loose. How does the Prime Minister square this, balance this, uh, keeping the pipeline open and and promoting that when he pretty much condemns the Canadian industry, others will say? I think you've asked uh, an existential question, uh, an extraordinarily strategic question, and I think it has exposed the hypocrisy of both uh, Biden and Trudeau. Um, and, and let me be clear, I don't consult to any energy industry whatsoever. I don't have any investments in them. But I am. I do heat my home. I've heated my home for 40 years with natural gas. I have a natural gas water tank. I understand the benefits of natural gas to heat my house when it gets cold outside. And I, this has been actually a very useful uh, event this last uh, several weeks. Because I think it's sort of made it much more transparent and clear to millions of people who started to focus on this, how absolutely dependent and essential we are on natural gas. This is not a luxury good, like going to, I don't know, Florida for the winter break for a week. It is absolutely essential to heat your home. And so, Ian, does the communication around this need to change? Because yes. it seems, as we've talked many times, we live in a land of extremes. And yes. and to me, uh, the government, the prime minister is selling, shut the tap off, shut the tap off, shut the tap off. They're selling the extremes as opposed to selling 
transition and what it will look like and how we get there. Scott, you're absolutely right. I'm doing a study this summer on my, because I don't teach in the summer, I'm doing this big study looking at uh, at the META study, looking up all the studies on the cost of transition. And and so I'm getting all kinds of stats. Well, one of the stats that's fascinating, 80% of all the households in Canada heat with oil or natural gas, mostly natural gas, by the way. 15 million households, over 12 million heat with natural gas. And the idea that you could just flip a switch, flip a switch to what? To electricity. Well, to do that, I have to rip out my gas uh, uh, furnace. Everyone else does too, by the way. And uh, uh, an electric furnace is about $5,000. And then I've got to rewire the house because it takes huge amounts of electricity. And the electricity is about 15 cents in Ontario per kilowatt hour, as everybody knows listening. But natural gas is the equivalent of six cents a kilowatt hour. So they're saying to everybody, rip out your, your furnace. Spend 5000 for a new furnace, then rewire your house, which is another several thousand dollars. And then, by the way, your annual operating cost for the electricity to heat your house is going to go up about 300%. Have a nice day. Yeah, I mean, that that's exactly why rural Ontario and rural Canada is heating with propane, because they can't afford electricity. In the 70s, exactly. many exactly. houses and water heaters were using electricity, but now electricity has become so incredibly expensive that, that people are, uh, even in the rural areas, have switched from electric to propane. Several years ago, when the FIT program was brought up by the government of Ontario, I predicted, and some people I was debating, environmentalists were laughing at me, scoffing at my claim. I said, you're going to rue the day of this FIT program, which is going to drive up the overall cost of electricity per kilowatt hour, because what you're doing is you're incentivizing people to get off of electricity. And full full disclosure, Scott, on air, about 10 years ago, I switched from electric water tank to a natural gas tank and a natural gas dryer from electric dryer. And I did that because electricity went from being really cheap to being relatively quite a bit more expensive. So I said, nuts to that. And I switched, and there were a lot of other people that did that. Yeah. They were yeah. they were the authors of their own, not demise, but uh, it was a, a policy that backfired because it incentivized people to get off of electricity by driving up the cost of electricity to produce more green electricity through the FIT program. And if you drive through rural Ontario on the wintertime, all you smell is wood-burning stoves. Which is also a fossil fuel, by the way. It's a, a and, more, and perhaps the most the most polluting of them. Yes. Uh, Ian Lee has been with us, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, talking about everything from Line Five to Greyhound. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on nine hundred CHML.